Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Aren't you glad you got up at 5.30 to talk about Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3? Man, I tell you what, I'm fired up. Deuteronomy, great book. Finding out a lot about God, stuff we forget about God, or maybe things we didn't want to believe about God, but that are true, and help us to enter into a fuller knowledge of who He is and who we are and why we owe Him our lives. Deuteronomy is absolutely amazing in revealing who God is and how uh, we are saved. Last week we looked at chapter 1, and the week before we looked at chapter 1, and we see that here in the beginning of this treaty between God and His people that you can see outlined for you on page 325, this ancient treaty structure that we're in. You can see that we're in the historical prologue of the treaty. So before God tells us about how our relationship with Him is supposed to go, which He gives us in the stipulations, which is the larger part of the book, before He gives us that part of our relationship with Him, He reminds us of who He is and who we are. And we have two reasons to celebrate in this historical prologue, uh, celebrate particularly God's faithfulness. And in this prologue, He's reminding us that whatever he says to us is to be relied upon because all we have to do is look at history and see how he works. So the historical prologue is the history of God's relationship to his people. And in that prologue, we see two major things. One is that we are completely unreliable. (laughs) We are not faithful. The prologue shows us God's grace by showing that our side of the equation, our side of the treaty, has always been broken. On the other hand, what the historical prologue shows us is that God is always faithful and that He can be trusted. So before we get into what we should do and what we shouldn't do, just remember how gracious God is. That's the purpose of the prologue. Now, in ancient treaties... The purpose of the prologue (coughs) was to show the people how much they owed the suzerain king, but it was also to show that the suzerain king will wipe you out if you don't obey him, and that he's proven himself all over the world. But in this historical prologue, God, the suzerain king, is showing himself to be very gracious, very faithful, although he also shows himself to be holy and just and wrathful, as we shall see in our text today. Well... We, we looked last week at how God calls us to take possession of our possessions. And in the midst of that, he is a God who disciplines us. And we had to rush it at the end. We're going to come back to this idea of discipline a little bit today. And, uh, and we'll see how this is part of our salvation, the way that God's anger actually works in our favor uh, for our salvation. But let's turn to chapter 2. We're not going to read every verse, verse by verse. I don't think we'd do anything but but read this if we did. We're covering two chapters today. They hang together. They're sort of the meat of the historical prologue. And what we're going to notice, first of all, is that God keeps all his promises to everybody. So what God's going to show us is that he doesn't just keep his promises to Israel. He keeps, keeps his word no matter to whom he says it. So part of the historical prologue is to show us that God is the suzerain king over all the earth. As Paul says about God in Acts chapter 17, he's the one who appoints the nations. He decides the boundaries. He raises up the kings. 
There's nothing happening anywhere in the world that is not under His sovereignty. There's no nation that can say that God doesn't care about their nation or that God doesn't rule over them. And it doesn't matter what they believe. Even if those nations 100% deny God, that makes Him no less the God of that nation. Not the God who's worshipped there, but the God who owns that nation, directs all of its affairs, and will determine its conclusion. So what we see in the historical prologue is that God is showing the Israelites, I'm not just a God of your nation. I'm not just a God of the church. I'm a God of the entire world. And all nations, everything that happens to them, happens to them under my sovereign decree and plan. So when I say I'm going to do something with this nation or that nation or this nation, it's just as sure as when I say I'm going to do this for Israel. And sometimes we forget that. Uh, you may have noticed in the, the uh, CNN study uh, this week that evangelical Christians are some of the ones who know the least about other religions. I guess that's really no surprise because people who are serious about their religion sometimes get all cocooned in. All they can see is their faith. and They, they tend to measure everything by their experience. They get very serious about it. The negative part of that is we don't know what's going on around us and what's going on around us is under the hand of God. And He is displaying His glory all over the world no matter what the religion is. Now we see that in these first 23 verses. God keeps all His promises to everybody. First of all, to Edom. He says, uh, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. He said, look at verse 3. You've been traveling around this mountain, this, this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Now look at verse 5. Do not contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on. Why? Because I have given Mount Sierra to Esau as a possession. I have given the unbelievers their land as a possession. Now, of course, Esau was Jacob's brother. So this is Uncle Esau here. And you remember how Jacob deceived his own father to get the birthright and to take it out of Esau's hands. And then he, in fear, fled And went off to Laban's ranch. And there married Leah and Rachel. Eventually he comes back. And Esau is gracious to him. He's had about 20 years to cool his jets. And he had already claimed the area of Mount Seir. And God had given it to him. And you'll notice even with Ishmael in the previous generation. Isaac and Ishmael were sons of Abraham. Isaac is the son of promise, but God made certain promises to Ishmael and took care of Ishmael, even though Ishmael was the unbeliever. Even though Ishmael was, the Ishmaelites turned out to be the Muslims in current day uh, parlance, God made promises to them in a certain sense and provided for them. And God keeps all of his promises to everybody. And he's doing it here to Esau. So he says, you shall not have even a place for one sandal because I don't want you to contend with them. And I don't want you taking their land. Now, notice that he goes on to say in verse 6, this doesn't work against you. 
because I'm taking care of some unbeliever somewhere, or even if I've made promises to unbelievers in certain places, it doesn't take away from you. Notice in verse 6, he says, You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. You say, where are we going to get, we going to get this money? We're just out here in the wilderness. Where did they get the money? You know where they got the money. They got it from Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. Why? Because God knew he was going to have them buy provisions instead of take them in warfare. They were going to buy their provisions from Esau. He goes on to say, for the Lord your God, verse 7, has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, look at this. This is a kind of a repetitive type of phrase in Deuteronomy. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So don't complain that I'm not going to give you a, a battle victory with the Edomites. I've taken care of you. I've gone with you. You haven't lacked a thing. Stop complaining. Don't worry about it. I've given you the money to buy what you need. Sometimes we're all upset because something terrible happens to us. Even financial disaster. But you know what I've noticed around here? People who have financial disaster are still driving down the street in a car. And they're still eating food on Monday morning. That's an amazing thing. And God says, hey, what you complaining about? You got food? You got a way to get around? You got friends? Uh, it's amazing when you think about it that way, how God has been with you and you've really lacked for nothing. And he says this about his promise to Esau. It doesn't take away from us. Everything always adds to us, as we shall see. Now, in verses uh, 8b through 15, you'll see he says the same thing about Moab. Now, who is Moab? Moab is the son and the grandson, get this, of Lot. You remember that uh, Abraham and Lot divided up the territory because their people were warring with each other. So he said, Abraham said, Lot, you can have whatever area you want. And he took, Lot took the area that looked like the most fertile place. Meanwhile, a little later on, you remember that his daughters did not have children. And there was no man around that they thought they could have children with. So they schemed together. Get this. They said, let's get daddy drunk. I'll go over and have sex with him one night. And then let's get him drunk again. You can have sex with him. They had sex with their own father. And the oldest daughter had a son named Moab. And the Ammonites came from the second daughter's son. So these are ancestrally conceived sons of Lot, who was related, of course, to Abraham. These are blood cousins. And we all have some cousins like this. Uh, and <laughs> especially in Mississippi. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. It came out. And actually, as we all know, that's not very funny, actually, because it's, it's too real to be funny. Uh, in Mo, You'll notice then he says about Moab that I have given R, look at verse 9, I have given R, A-R, to the people of Lot for a possession. Now, notice what he shows us here. Even in the way in which he deals with unbelievers with his promises to them. Look at verse 10. He says, The emim, 
formerly lived there. Now, who are the Amim? They are a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? They were the giants that terrified the Israelites when the 12 spies went in 38 years before this and saw the Anakim who were gigantic and came back and reported about it. People got terrified and the Israelites said, we can't do that. These giants in the land. There's no way we can do what the Lord commanded us to do. We'll get slaughtered. And they lost their nerve because they lost their faith. That this really wasn't about their ability to beat giants. This was really about God's willingness to defeat giants for them. They lost their faith and so they lost their nerve. Look what God says here. I dispossessed the Anakim for the blooming Moabites. The people you were terrified of, I already dealt with them one time to handle a promise I had to people that are not even my people. It's another little, you know, of getting in your grill and saying, you Christians, sometimes your faith is less than the pagans. You know, I took care of them. And you need to learn to trust me. And look what he says in verse 11. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. So uh, he says in verse 14, And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. We're going to see that God's anger works against the unbeliever. His anger also works in our lives, and you can see it right there. Sometimes his judgment comes on the church because their faith doesn't even equal the faith of the pagans. I have unbelievers tell me certain things that they believe about God, even certain ways in which they trust God to do certain things. They don't even believe in Christ. And I have them tell me that kind of stuff all the time. I'm thinking, you know, I wish some Christians I knew would believe in God as much as you do. So we're going to see that God's anger not only purges out the Amorites and the Canaanites and others, but his anger actually purges the church as well. In fact, his anger purges my life. He hates the sin in my life. He's completely opposed to it. He's in all-out war against the sin in my life. And sometimes when he takes the sin out of my life, he also takes my left arm or something like that. Uh, But it's a good thing because that ultimately will purge me of all sin. I'll be in his presence as a perfect man one of these days. I sure look forward to that, and so does my wife. Now let's look at not only does he make promises to Edom and Moab that he keeps. We'll look at verses 16 through 23. He keeps promises to Ammon as well. He says, I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession in verse 19. And he he uh, cleanses them of people that they called Zamzamim. I bet you hadn't heard of the Zamzamims. You can tell your wife, hey, honey, we studied the Zamzamims today. Uh, she'll be very impressed with your scholarship. And But notice that he says at the end of that section, verses 24, uh, I'm sorry, the end of that section is verse 23. And, and you'll see there that he cleanses the land of all kinds of people, uh, including eventually the Canaanites. Uh, but... He makes promises to Edom and Moab and Ammon that he keeps. And it's kind of as though when they're getting ready to uh, conquer the peoples 
whose land they're going to eventually take. They just tiptoe around the places where God has made special promises. Whatever He says, He reliably sticks to it. Whatever He says He's going to do, that's what He does. That's what we learn in this first section. Now, secondly, and because of that, of course, that means we should trust Him. If He makes promises to His kids and he shows himself to keep his promises to, to unbelievers that aren't his adopted kids, you, you adopted kids then can trust him. He'll, be, he'll keep his promises to you. So that's exactly what we learn as we turn to verse 24 all the way through most of chapter 3. God keeps his promises to save his people. If he keeps all of his promises to everybody, he particularly keeps his promises to save us. Now, in verses 24, 224 through 3.11, we're going to see a grand scope of God's history here that he delivers us from his and our enemies. God keeps his promise to deliver us from his and our enemies. Behold, I've given into your hand Sion the Amorite. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people who are under the whole heaven. You see that verses 24 and 25. God says, I'm keeping my promises to Edom and Moab and Ammon. But now we're going to attack Sion, uh, the king of the Amorites, or at least one of the kings of the Amorites. Now, you'll see this battle under Sion. That's the first one we want to look at in verses 26 and 37. You'll see this battle in Numbers 21. What I want you to notice is go back, keep your finger where you are in Deuteronomy and go back to Genesis 15. And let's see how this goes all the way back to Abraham. God had predicted this all the way back to Abraham. Probably in this period right here in Deuteronomy, we're around the year, it would either be the 13th century It could be as early as the 15th century B.C. Now with Abraham, we're going back to 2000. Okay, we're going way back, 1900 uh, B.C. And here's what you see. Uh, This is the famous covenant with Abraham uh, with the flaming pot and so on. But the verse I want you to notice is uh, verse uh, 15. As for yourself... You shall go to your fathers in peace, he says to Abram. You shall be buried in a good old age. But now look at verse 16. And they, that would be his children, shall come back here in the fourth generation for, look at this, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Very interesting. We're going to see that God says that this whole thing about Israel taking the promised land, this whole thing about your salvation, also has to do with His judgment on the earth. And His judgment is not yet ripe because the fullness of the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet come to conclusion. He predicted that 450, 500 years before this. So what has happened is the wickedness of the Amorites, not the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites, but the Amorites has come to full expression 
God's anger now is ready to be expressed. So what we have to remember about the Israelites going into this land, fighting these battles, is they're not fighting battles against nice people. These are not nice people. These are very wicked people. And their wickedness has come to fullness. That's the reason uh, the Lord is using the Israelites to destroy them. Look over at Deuteronomy 18 for just a moment. Come back into Deuteronomy, but turn to chapter 18. And look right around verse 9. And look what he says here about what he wants Israel to do when they come into this land. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, this is 18.9. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. What are those abominable practices? There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Huh? This is how bad it was. In their pagan worship, they worshiped their gods by offering their own blood children as sacrifices. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So you see what they were doing. They were taking taking innocent human life. That's the reason for the church to to rise up and make a holy complaint about the destruction of unborn children around us because it reminds us of that passage. We know that God, that's an abomination to the Lord to take innocent human life. That's the reason the church rises up when there's injustice in the courts or when there's racism and we see one race not being dealt with fairly in the courts. It's, an, it's a diminution of human life. The church should rise up because we realize the Lord hates that stuff. That's an abomination to Him. And when we see the New Age movement, it ought to make our skin crawl a little bit. Because we know what the Lord thinks about that. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want his people participating. And when some of us pick up the paper and see what the astrology says for today, (laughs) it ought to make your skin crawl a little bit. Why am I doing this? This is what the Amorites do. They look to the positioning of the stars and whether they're an Aquarian or some other thing uh, to find out how their day is going to go. That's what the Amorites did. So you can see that God says they are unjust to one another and they worship false gods. They have no idea who made them or who gave them their national boundaries, who gives them food by day, who gives them rest by night. They completely disregard their creator and the one who offers redemption. Now his anger has been stored up against the Amorites. That's the reason now that he's ready for Israel to defeat Sion 
uh, one of the, king of the kings of the Amorites. Now notice how God does this. In verses 26 through 29, he first of all makes a sincere offer. And through Moses, he says, let me pass through your land. Verse 27. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall set me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan and into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. So he makes a sincere offer in verses 26 through 29. And the Lord makes an offer to the world today. Before he comes to judge it, he makes a sincere offer. Anyone who will come to me, I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That is a universal offer that goes to everyone. Now we find out with those who have hardened their hearts against the Lord, that offer just makes it worse. It just complicates and aggravates their sin, just as it does us. If we've had the offer, if we grew up in a Christian home, if we've heard the gospel, and then we reject it, it just aggravates our rebellion against the Lord. There's a sense in which the ones who will be judged first are the ones who grew up in the household of God. It'll be the Americans who've had gospel and radio and TV and bookstores and everywhere you can turn, you can hear the gospel, will be the first ones to be judged because it's aggravated our sin. That's what happened with the Amorites. It aggravated their sin and their guilt that they had a sincere offer to let the Israelites go through their land. And they chose not to do it. Look, look at verse 30. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Why? Now look at this. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is to this day. You say, man, a lot that doesn't look fair. Yo, so God gives you a sincere offer and then hardens your heart so you can't take it. That's a fine, how do you do? Well, do you remember the story from Exodus where Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may worship me. And we're told Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own heart, and wouldn't allow the people to go. And then you read later, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And you read, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is called judicial hardening. There is a sense in which when the world is rejecting the one true and living God and they harden their heart against Him, oftentimes God, when their fullness of their wickedness has come to expression, He will actually harden their heart and make it worse as a judicial hardening. It's not as though they don't deserve it. It's not as though we don't deserve it. For we at times had hard hearts. And God graciously, beyond His justice, in His mercy, He has softened our hearts. But here He does what justice would command. He has complete control over all of history. And He hardens their heart so that they will not. And then you notice at the end of verse 30, uh, the conclusion is that He might hand them over into your hand. So that judgment will come which means then salvation will come to you. And you notice with our deliverance from Egypt, we were delivered by grace out of Egypt and at the same time we were delivered by justice toward the Egyptians. The same thing is going to happen with our enemies when Christ comes back. Who is our enemy? It's the devil himself. He has hardened his heart against the Lord. The Lord has hardened his heart 
Satan's heart. He is a confirmed enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes back, in order to save us, he is going to judge the devil and throw him into the lake of fire where we'll never have to deal with him again. Our salvation consists of the justice of God against all sin. I told you a moment ago, I have sin in my being. When he comes, he will judge all that sin and purge it out of me, and I'll be free for the first time. So I'm saved by his justice. I'm saved by his wrath. I'm saved by his holiness. And that's the only way I could possibly be made holy, is that the fullness of his wrath is expressed against the fullness of the sin that is in this world. And you see the power of it here. He is not to be trifled with. And we often want to make God into the image of some wonderful uncle that we had that wouldn't hurt a flea. We say, well, that just must be what God is like. Well, maybe it's part of what God is like. But your uncle is not God. And we all need to reform our ideas of who God is. Normally, we get our first idea of who God is from our fathers. And that ought to scare every father here to death. Think how much rehabilitation your children need to figure out who God really is. Okay, think about that. Think about the massive therapy that your children need to figure out who God is. Well, what about you? I know you love, most of you love your daddies. But think about the massive rehabilitation you need to figure out who God really is. And how are you going to do that? Here's how you do it. You go to Moses. You go to the one who is greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly expresses the Father. And when people say to me, you know, I don't really like the Old Testament. Oh, really? Why not? Well, in the Old Testament, you have a God of wrath. I like the God of the New Testament, a God of love. Okay, let's turn to a few texts where Jesus is speaking in the New Testament. Who speaks of God's wrath more than any other prophet in the Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of everlasting punishment more than any prophet in the Old Testament. Remember our study in Revelation. Some of you are here. Do you think that God's wrath is expressed in Revelation? Look at the end of that with that grisly battle where Jesus Christ comes on his white horse and slays the wicked. God's wrath is part of who he is. And what we need to do as those who would be students of God Theologians are people who study God. We would be students of God. We are His children. We're trying to be like Him. We're trying to understand His character. And His character includes a perfect wrath that is not like the imperfect wrath either of this Father or my Father. It's a perfect wrath. And we cannot understand our salvation apart from it. And that's what we're seeing very clearly here, that He makes a sincere offer. He hardens their hearts just as He did with Pharaoh. And then notice in verses 31 through 33, he gives us the victory. And the Lord our God gave him over to us and we defeated him and his sons and all his people in verses 31 through 33. The Lord wins the battle for us. He gave him over to us. And look at verse 33. You see this wonderful combination. Our Lord gave him over to us. And then look what what Moses says. And we defeated him. Well, who won the battle? Did God win the battle? Or did we win the battle? The answer, yes. Both are true. God wins the battle for us, but he wins the battle through us. The same is true today. 
How do you deal with sin in your life that God hates? God will win the battle over the sin in your life, but He'll win it through your conscious participation and effort. How will God one day cleanse this world of its evil? He'll win the battle for us. But it appears as though we're going to fight the battle with Him. We know we're going to be conquerors. We know we're going to be victors. But He will fight the battle through us. It's the same way right here. He wins all these battles for them. But He does it through them. It's the same way with you and me. We trust Him to win the battle. But we trust Him to do it through us. Now let's come to a difficult set of verses. For a lot of people. And for me too. Verses 33 through 36. Where we learn that He destroys our enemies. He destroys our enemies. Verse 33 says, The Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction. It's a technical phrase that you'll see throughout the Old Testament. Devoted to destruction. Every city, men, Women and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From the Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Okay, what we have here is what we call holy war. And we need to take a few minutes and talk about holy war. The Muslims would call it jihad, a holy war. That means that it is a war that God has commanded. And it is a war over good and evil. And it is a physical war between one people against another people. That's a holy war. Now, what you'll notice, first of all, is that holy war is a reality. There is such a thing as holy war. God, When God commands war, it is an expression of his wrath against sin. And in the Old Testament, he, ex- he commands Israel to engage certain battles. Now, he commands them not to engage other battles. You notice, don't battle the Edomites, don't battle the Moabites. Don't battle the Ammonites. I want you to battle the Amorites. And he calls them into battle. And when they win that battle, he wants total destruction. Now, gentlemen, I don't think any of us can read a text like this without having some major moral issues come to our minds because we see the chaos, the confusion, the corruption, the evil, of those who claim to be perpetrating holy war in our own day. We can see that it's, it's not only wrong-headed, but it's completely destructive, leaving generations of resentment from one tribe to the other, or in this case, one nation against another. So we have to ask ourselves, how can this be in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, notice in the Old Testament, This war took place only by direct command of the Lord. It's when the Lord speaks as an expression of his intention to exercise his justice against a people that this is done. 
Now, certain ones can claim to have a word from the Lord. And crazy people, if you've ever interviewed crazy people or counseled them, crazy people think they're hearing from the Lord. And there are crazy people in the world who think they're hearing from the Lord. And there are people who create religions who say they've heard from the Lord. Anybody can claim to have heard from the Lord. But the fact is, there was some historical truth to this. There are moments when God actually does such a thing. You know, it's a funny thing. If, you, if you're a psychologist and you're interviewing someone that technically you would call uh, insane, they, they've kind of lost their mind. If you spend any time with people like that, it's not long before you say, you know what, I kind of was thinking like that yesterday. <laughs> you know, what, what they do is a, a crazy person takes something that's true and stretches it way out of its context. You know, for example, a paranoid person thinks that everybody's out to get them. Well, the fact is, the devil's out to get you. You know, there's some truth to this. The devil's trying to destroy you. But crazy people take that way out of context. That's all they think about, and they don't think about the fact that God's protecting them from the one who's trying to destroy them. But they get a hold of a truth and pull it way out of his context. There is a truth. God does or has historically at times called for a total destruction of a wicked people. But there are some in this world who take that out of context and think they know when God is speaking when he's not. Now, you'll notice secondly, this is done only by God's theocracy for purposes of promoting his kingdom in his nation state, his people who... It's, it's the church and state together. That's what makes a theocracy. They're coterminous. Now, some people say well, America is God's nation. It's a bunch of baloney. Uh, America ought to submit to God's word. America ought to uh, seek to uh, be a staging ground for goodness around the world and allow the church to operate. But God is in many, many... God's in all the nations. He's leading people to Christ everywhere. But in this day, God's nation really was Israel. And God expressed His holiness through Israel in military ways that He doesn't do today because there is no theocracy. If you look in for, today, if you look in First Peter, you'll see that we're called aliens and strangers. We don't have a nation state where the church has also its state and a military to protect itself. That was true, however, in the Old Testament. When you have a true theocracy, God uses that nation state to exercise His holiness against nations. Now, I'll give you not just a Muslim example, but a Christian example of how this is misapplied. During the Crusades, the Christians thought it was their duty to exercise war against people who had taken Jerusalem from them. That was a misunderstanding of how God works through Christians. We just sang a hymn a moment ago. Lead on, O King Eternal, uh, the, the, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. Our warfare is not with the weapons of this world. Why? We don't have a theocracy anymore. Now, one day a theocracy is going to come. When Jesus Christ returns, he will reconstitute his people as a physical, geographical nation 
We'll have a new heavens and a new earth. The new city of Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. We'll have a capital city. And the king will be enthroned there. And we will be his people. He'll have a theocracy. And you notice in Revelation, when the theocracy returns, God again goes to physical warfare against the evil. So there's truth in this, but it's truth that got distorted by people who don't have a New Testament. People who don't have a Messiah. People who don't have a Christ. When Christ came, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He told Peter, put your sword down. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And he restored Malchus's ear that Peter had chopped off. Christ renounced that sort of behavior in seeking to deal with evil. It's with deeds of love and mercy and the proclamation of the kingdom to come. That the wicked repent and come into this group of aliens and strangers who are pilgrims moving toward the new city of Jerusalem. So the Muslims and the misguided Christians in history, in the Middle Ages particularly, are way off base. They think they have a word from the Lord, and they don't. The people of God have gone into dispersion. We don't lift the sword for the sake of the church anymore. We lift the sword for the sake of our nation. And Paul shows us in Romans 13 how the anger of God is expressed today in civil warfare. It's through the civil magistrate, Romans 13, not through the church. God has instituted civil magistrates, nations all around the world, to reward the good and to punish the evil with the sword. God still has raised up the sword, but now it's in the hands of the civil magistrate. When Christ comes back, the civil and the church are put together in theocracy again, and the church will have orders to go to physical warfare. Now, that's where we are in the Old Testament. What the Old Testament is, is a picture of the ultimate, imperfectly brought into time. So it's kind of like the eternal theocracy is brought into time to give us an expression of how God rules, even physically, when His Son is ultimately one day King. He will exercise the justice, the holiness, and the wrath of God. He will uh, destroy all evil and those who take the side of evil. Don't think for a moment that you will not see the wrath of God in bloodier terms than what's here before us in the Old Testament. If you think the Old Testament has a God full of wrath, wait till you get to the end of the New Covenant. So those who want to be disabused of the wrath of God just don't want God. They want their uncle. So God's holiness is a real thing, gentlemen, and that's the reason that the gospel about Jesus Christ is so crucial. Because God is not to be trifled with. And the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it's important that we understand the Old Testament, understand the character of God. This is His character. And the God who is so gracious and kind and endearing through the Lord Jesus Christ is the same God as the one who expresses His wrath in Deuteronomy. That's what makes His grace so gracious because His very character is to destroy evil and we are the evildoers. So who can figure that this God who hates evil would love us? That's the reason we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. This saved a wretch, an evildoer like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Who can explain this? The only way you can explain it is the infinite mercy and grace of God towards sinners. What they deserve is what the Amorites got. 
We don't get what we deserve. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the amazing thing about the New Testament. Therefore, as you can see in our salvation, the simplest thing about our relationship with God, you can't understand our salvation without the Old Testament. Because you don't know what we deserved until you look at the Amorites. Do you think that our wickedness somehow, God escapes His conscience and He doesn't see it? Do you think that He doesn't notice what the Americans are doing that we're all swept up in? Of course He does. But His grace is even greater through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, holy war is a reality. It's massively misunderstood, both by Christians historically and by non-Christians who are not expressing the wrath of God. Hear me? They're not expressing the wrath of God. They're expressing their own corrupt wrath. And that's what we did in the Crusades. That's what the Muslims did on 9-11. They were expressing their own evil wrath. That's not the wrath of God. When the wrath of God is being expressed, here's what normally happens. The ones who are actually implementing it, that would be us guys, we're terrified by nature. We're not saying, hey, let's go kill those people. We're saying, Lord, I don't want to go do this. I'm afraid of those people. They're big. And God thrusts us into this ministry because of His justice. Now, it's the same thing with the proclamation of the gospel today. We go with fear and trembling, telling people what I just said to you. The unbeliever hates what I just said to you. They hate the idea that you would think that God is wrathful. And so we go with fear and trembling doing our deeds of love and mercy. Well, deeds of love and mercy are easier to do than this. Where we're explaining to someone why they need Christ. The reason they need Christ is the wrath of God abides on them. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 36. The wrath of God abides on them. And so we go with fear and trembling, not with a sense of conquest, how great we are. That's exactly the way it was with the Israelites. But this is the way God is exercising His wrath now. He is sending the message that He is coming soon. That His kingdom is going to be brought to conclusion. Repent. Flee from the wrath to come, said John the Baptist. Believe in the good news of the gospel. Flee this wrath that is coming. That's the announcement of the gospel. That the kingdom is coming to its consummation, its conclusion. The ripeness of the sins of the world are coming before God and it's, His judgment is coming soon. Flee from that. God has provided a way in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel itself is an expression of the holy wrath of God and the infinite mercy and grace to forgive sinners who deserve to be destroyed like the Amorites. So that's the way that we look at the holy war, which does cause all kinds of problems and questions. If When we get to Deuteronomy 20, we will see that God has standards for warfare and we have standards for warfare. We're going to talk about the just war theory. How do Americans or any nation, how do they engage warfare in a way that's consistent with the truths of the Old Testament and the New Testament? There's a way to do that. We'll see. But in Deuteronomy 20, you'll see that there are different sets of standards for when Israel is fighting a battle against the Amorites or the Canaanites who are in the Holy Land and when they're fighting a battle outside the Holy Land. The Holy Land is consecrated. It's sacramental. So if wickedness is being performed right there in the sanctuary of God, it is a greater evil that is dealt with immediately and everything has to be destroyed. 
Because the wickedness is so great and so deep. Because that is holy land. It is land set apart for the presence of God. And you can see with the Israelites, when God sets up His tabernacle where His presence is, when they enter His presence without His permission, they too are destroyed completely. So it has to do with the holy presence of God in the holy land and there has to be total destruction of all the evil that is there. And we must not question that we deserve it along with the Amorites. So that is the explanation of his total destruction of our enemies. Let's look at verse 37. You'll see he forbids collateral damage. We'll come back to that in chapter 20. God has very specific war, uh, warfare standards. Now look, he, in verses 1 through 11, we're not going to look at it, but he deals the same way with Og. Og, another king of the Amorites. So he deals with Sion and Og in this manner of holy warfare. And notice now, the, notice the first thing we said was uh, that uh, that he delivers us uh, from his and our enemies. But notice secondly, he gives us a good inheritance. He takes us out of the grasp of Sion and Og in order to give us a good inheritance. And if you'll look in, on page 416 for just a moment, we're going to close up shop here in a minute. But look on page 416, you'll see a map. And basically what he's doing now in holy warfare, he's judging the evil of humanity and particular humans who have become very wicked in land that he has consecrated for himself. And if you look on page 416, you'll see there on the right, you've got Edom and Moab that are protected and Ammon that are protected. But look, he gives the land of the Amorites to Reuben, to Gad, and to the East Manasseh tribe, half the tribe of Manasseh. So you can see there in that map that he's already beginning to dispossess people to give us the land. So in verses 12 through 17, we dispossess our enemies. Secondly, verses 18 through 20, we help each other dispossess our enemies. Now look at verse 18 in chapter 3 and you'll see what I'm talking about. The tribes of, uh, the half tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben are given their inheritance. But he says to them in 1820, uh, 18 through 20, uh, the Lord has given you this land to possess, uh, possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. He says your wives and children can stay here on the east side of the Jordan until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. So he says to those who've already received their inheritance, you go fight the battle, cleanse the land on the west side of the Jordan, for the rest of your brothers before you come home and enjoy your inheritance. It's a beautiful picture of how the church is to work together. Some of you really have the peace of the gospel. You're to be engaged in each other's lives until they experience the peace of the gospel. Some of you have your consciences satisfied that you don't have anything to fear about your guilt and these massive sins you committed. But your brother is really struggling with his life. You come into his life. You may have rest and peace, but your brother doesn't have it. We're brothers and in the church, we wrestle with each other to find peace. That sounds like a contradiction, but it's the truth. We wrestle with all these heresies and all these sins and all these temptations to find the peace of God. You'll find that, that principle right here in Deuteronomy. 
We're going to move quickly. We do it fearlessly, verses 20, uh, verse 21. We do it fearlessly. You shall not fear them, and you shall not fear the devil. The devil's more powerful than you are, but do not fear him. He can only wipe you out physically. He can't throw you into hell. The Lord can throw you into hell. So don't fear the devil. Don't fear your enemies. You fight fearlessly. Now lastly, notice that God in His holiness and His justice disciplines us to save us. You'll notice this text here in verse 23. Let's read this. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, this is Moses. You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven and or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So you'll, you'll notice that we want to see it all, verses 23 through 25. We want the Lord not to discipline us. We want to go into the Holy Land now. We want to experience it now. But B, God's plan is severe. He says, don't talk to me about it again. You're not going to go. And you can look back in uh, Numbers and see the story in Numbers, uh, when, uh, Numbers 20 at Meribah where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And he's, God says to him, you're not going to go in the Holy Land. God's plan is severe. He sticks to his word of promise to Moses that he's going to be disciplined. But look at verse 28. His plan is good. God goes, goes on to say uh, in verse 27, Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua. Charge Joshua. There's a plan. And of course, the big Joshua is Jesus himself. So Moses, you're not going to be the champion. Joshua is going to be the champion because one day I'm going to send the second Joshua, Jesus Christ, who will come in and conquer all of your and my enemies and he will provide for you the land. Jesus Christ will conquer. And he says to Moses, we must submit to his plan. Encourage and strengthen Joshua. Get with the game plan. If you've been disciplined by the Lord, submit to his discipline and His providence in your life. He has a purpose for it. Encourage the one who's going to do what you, in your own flesh, you wanted to do it. God's raised up another plan. And His plan is good. Because in the end, we dispossess, gentlemen, this entire world of what they own. We plunder the entire world because God has been merciful to us. He will cleanse the evil and give to us the new heavens and the new earth. That's exactly what He's doing. And it's just... We are the ones who deserve to be dispossessed. But for some reason that only God Himself can explain, He is giving us the universe. That's the story of God's saving plan for people who don't deserve it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to learn from it, Old and New Testament alike, and help us to apply it, even today, as we go into the workplace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.